You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. And we sound great this morning. I'm glad that you are here. I love the fact that uh, every week uh, we get to uh, see new faces and meet new friends. And uh, it's always a good thing when you've got people literally on the front row. We often say in uh, church life that the front row is often a fake row because nobody wants to sit on it. But uh, when uh, the seats are limited, uh, it's great when people are sitting on the front row. We're glad that you are here. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope that you'll join me there. I just want to briefly say, uh, you may have missed, uh, we have a a brief uh, Lord's Supper explainer. Uh, available uh, over at, uh, at the entryway. Uh, we have so many new people uh, within our church family. Uh, some have been maybe visiting for a while, and uh, maybe you come from a little different tradition, or maybe you just uh, need some clarity uh, on our beliefs as it relates to the Lord's Supper, and so hopefully that will you'll find that helpful. Uh, also, in the foyer, uh, our children's department has put uh, some a list of some favorite resources out there, so particularly those of you who have kids, Uh, I would encourage you to grab one of those sheets on one of the tables out there in the foyer as well. Um, But John chapter 4, we're in a sermon series uh, here on Sunday mornings. I think this is now like week 13 uh, of our sermon series through the Gospel of John. And this morning we are moving into the fourth chapter of John's Gospel where we find Jesus having an encounter with a second individual. There are really three encounters that Jesus has here in the early chapters of John's Gospel. And so we've already seen... Uh, The encounter he had in John chapter 3 with a religious uh, ruler of that day named Nicodemus. Uh, And this morning we have uh, an unnamed Samaritan woman. Uh, You know, we often lack the ability to distinguish between needs and wants. Uh, I know those of you who are parents, uh, maybe you find yourself trying to explain that to your kids. They will often uh, express that they need something when, in fact, it's not really something they need. It's really just something that they want. And in all honesty, I probably use the word need too much. Um, There are certain things that I might suggest I need when, in fact, I don't need them. I'm kind of a gadget guy, for example. And so I'll see something and think, man, I need that. No, I I just want that. I don't need it. Um, And so, uh, on top of our inability to distinguish many times between needs and wants, uh, we also have a hard time, it seems, understanding which of our needs are most important, of those things that truly are needs. So, what is your most important need? Um, And and I think it kind of depends on where you are in life uh, as to what it is that you probably need the most. Uh, there are people that uh, clothing is, a, is, a, is an important need. Uh, for some, it's food. For some, it's money, shelter, sleep. Uh, we tend to pay more attention to those needs which are more immediate uh, and more obvious. And among our uh, legitimate needs, we're probably most often uh, aware of our need for food and for sleep. Uh, because uh, if you're not hungry right now, give it a few minutes and you probably will be. Uh, It'll be those of you who are looking at your watch uh, toward the end of the service because your stomach's starting to growl and everything, right? Uh, And then I don't know about you, but I find myself, uh, about the time I feel like I've had a pretty good night's rest, by the middle of the day, I'm like, I need a nap. I'm I'm just tired. And so in today's passage, we find Jesus uh, in a moment of need. He was thirsty. He was tired, uh, John tells us 
uh, in the text here. And his need was real. It was immediate. But the needs of this Samaritan woman whom he meets at Jacob's well are far deeper. Her need's far more serious. And he begins their conversation by asking her to meet his need, which I think he did intentionally because it kind of broke down some barriers, maybe some walls uh, that would have naturally been there in this particular cultural context. But his intention all along is to meet her needs in a way that she doesn't expect and doesn't even seem to desire, at least at first. So we're going to be looking at this episode in the life of Jesus for a couple of weeks, actually. And when I first laid out this series of messages, laid out kind of the framework for it, I very foolishly thought that I would somehow cover the first 45 verses of John chapter 4 in one message. That's not going to happen, okay? We're going to look at the first 15 verses of John chapter 4 here. And and my prayer is that as we do we'll find that Jesus exposes and addresses all of our deepest needs in a powerful and gracious way. So let's look at those first 15 verses together. John chapter 4. hope that you'll follow along as I read. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I want you to notice from the first six verses of our text here in John chapter 4 a significant setting. John opens his narrative by setting the scene. Jesus has learned that uh, the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing uh, more disciples than John. We already saw a reference to this kind of thing a couple of weeks ago when some of John's disciples uh, had concern. Uh, Maybe some unhealthy comparisons were happening there and John gives them a unique Uh, perspective on ministry and work within the kingdom of God and how uh, we can cooperate and those sorts of things. And so here uh, we find out that John the Baptist's disciples were not the only ones to notice of Jesus' popularity. Jesus learned that the word of the crowds who were coming uh, coming out to hear him and had reached the ears of the Pharisees, and that was a big deal. The Pharisees had heard the same thing and come to understand the same thing uh, that we learned a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And John clarifies for us 
that it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who were doing the actual baptizing. And uh, some would suggest, and I would tend to agree, that uh, there's probably some intentionality in that. Can you imagine uh, how divisive it would have been in the life of the early church for a number of disciples to be able to claim that they had been baptized by the Lord himself? Uh, and so it was, it was Jesus' disciples who were actually doing uh, the baptizing. And, and you've got to remember that several of them had probably uh, been uh, disciples of John the Baptist. They had been following him as their, as their teacher. Uh, and so Jesus is gracious, I think, here. And he, he doesn't want to stir up division by giving the Pharisees material for sowing discord between him, his disciples, John the Baptist, and his disciples. Uh, Jesus also knows that it's not yet time. His hour has not yet come. It's kind of the, the language we typically see in the Gospels. His time had not yet come to face the cross. And so much more work to be done in the Father's will before going to Calvary. And so rather than risk the anger and the plotting of the Judean Pharisees, Jesus leaves the area and heads back to Galilee. Now, he'd already been in Galilee earlier. You remember uh, at the wedding at Cana where he turned water into wine. So this is kind of a return trip. And this time, as Jesus is heading for Galilee, uh, he and his disciples stop at a Samaritan village named Sychar. The main road from Jerusalem up to, uh, to Galilee ran right through the heart of Samaria. So when we see this line here, this phrase, he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, I think it could either refer to geographical necessity if you were to, to put it into the GPS, in other words, the fastest route would be right through the heart of Samaria. Uh, but I think more importantly, he had a divine appointment. And now some commentators suggest it's one or the other. I happen to think it's both. Now, it is significant because many times Jews would, would choose, they would, they would rather go around Samaria because of some of the differences and some of the, uh, the prejudices and things that you've got to remember. Uh, the, the, the Samaritan people many times were considered half-breeds. That's why this conversation that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman at the well is incredibly significant from a cultural perspective. That's why she naturally questions the fact that he, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan woman particularly, for a drink of water. That was a big deal in that day. And so outside of the village of Sychar, Jesus stops to rest at Jacob's well. While his disciples go into town to get food. Now we don't know exactly where Sychar was uh, there, there is some, uh, some speculation. We do know exactly where Jacob's well was because it's still there today. Uh, the Greek uses the word for spring uh, to identify this well initially and then later uses the word well. So this is evidently a well uh, fed by an underground spring. And so when Jacob dug this well, he hit a very reliable spring. Uh, the well still gives water some 4,000 years after it was first dug. Um, today, it's underneath a, a Greek Orthodox uh, monastery uh, where it is still in use um, the last time I checked or the last time I knew. Anyway, Jesus arrives at Jacob's well weary from his journey and thirsty. It was the sixth hour, which very likely means high noon. It could mean uh, either noon or 6 p.m., depending on which time system John had in mind here. Uh, most commentators would say it was high noon because it's obviously the hottest part of the day would be an unusual time for a woman to be coming to draw water, as that was usually done in the morning or in the evening to avoid the heat of the day. But because of who this woman was, 
And some of the baggage that she brings with her, which we're going to see in just a moment, she would have very likely come at a time when few other people would be there because she was concerned about shame uh, and, and just who she was as an individual, how she was viewed in the eyes of others. So that brings us, number two, to a scandalous Samaritan. As Jesus sits down, he's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty. And what we have here is really a, a full display of the humanity of Jesus. John has, uh, has already made it clear uh, that Jesus is fully God. He has, has made clear his divinity. Now he's emphasizing his full humanity. He's weary, he's thirsty. But Jesus didn't just sit down at this well to get water. He's here to meet someone. He has a divine appointment. And we're told here, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now again, the last conversation, the last encounter... Uh, that Jesus had here in the Gospel of John was with this religious uh, leader by the name of Nicodemus. And I was going to tell you that Nicodemus and this woman at the well of Samaria could not be more different. Nicodemus was a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Nicodemus was held in honor because he was referred to as the teacher of Israel. She is a woman of low reputation. Nicodemus was deeply religious, a member of the Sanhedrin. She would have been considered in that day scandalous having had five husbands and now living with a man who was not her husband. Nicodemus was named, and his name would have been well known. But we're never told this woman's name. And I think one of the reasons for that is because perhaps we can identify with one or both of these individuals. Maybe as we've made our way through John's gospel here, you can in some respects identify with Nicodemus. Maybe you're one of those people who's felt like you've kind of got your religious T's crossed and your religious I's dotted and you've kind, of got an, you've kind of got a religious pedigree. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe your dad was a deacon or a preacher or whatever. Maybe you have a, a long history of religious involvement. So in some ways you can identify with Nicodemus who when he came to Jesus had some serious questions. But if anybody had his religious act together, it would have been Nicodemus. Well, it's quite the opposite for this woman. Maybe you're someone here this morning who can more readily identify with her. Maybe you find yourself wallowing in a sea of, uh, of regret and doubt and fear and shame. Maybe in many ways you feel marginalized. It may be that sitting in this room right now in this particular place, you feel just a little bit uncomfortable because you feel like you don't fit. So maybe you can more readily identify with this Samaritan woman. So Jesus enters into conversation with this unnamed, scandalous Samaritan woman. Jesus begins the conversation by asking her to meet his need. Notice Jesus doesn't just open with, hello, sinful woman, coming alone to the well in the heat of the day, huh? How shameful. You need salvation. Repent of your sins and believe in me and you'll be saved. No, Jesus knows that her greatest need is for salvation, to be sure, but he chooses first to address her need for dignity. Her need to be treated as a human being which we can be reasonably sure she rarely ever felt. 
She is so shocked by his request that she doesn't know how to respond. She's like, how is it that, that you, a Jew, would, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? To, for, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You've you got to realize, in the cultural context of that day, Samaritan women particularly were regarded by Jewish men as unclean from birth. Like dogs. John's parenthetical remark there is probably uh, better translated, Jews do not share vessels with Samaritans. Um, the, the language here in the ESV would lead us to believe that they didn't have any, even any dealings with them, but we know that that's probably not true because they could buy from and sell to Samaritans. After all, Jesus' disciples went were into the village to buy food. But they would never eat together. Sharing an eating or drinking vessel would, would be considered a huge social faux pas. Additionally, Jewish men were never supposed to speak to, particularly Samaritan women, in public. And so th there's so much about this conversation that is just, it's just off the charts, like out there. This isn't supposed to be happening. And I want you to notice in verse 10 a stimulating suggestion. Jesus obviously sees and, and, and understands that he's got this woman's attention now. He decided to use her shocked response as an opening to suggest something that is both confusing and thought-provoking. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So much like his conversation with Nicodemus, there is some deep, deep truth found here in some of this very ordinary language in a sense. If you knew the gift of God is probably a reference to the scriptures, to the Torah. The Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as scripture, but they didn't accept the other 34 books from Joshua to Malachi. So Jesus tells her that if she knew the scriptures well, and if she knew who he was, then she would ask for living water. Now, living water is clearly a double entendre. On the surface, living water refers to the fresh water deep in the well, coming directly from the spring, not the, the still or stagnant or stale water that you might find on a, uh, in a puddle or a pond even or, or something like that. So he is obviously talking about physically the water that is coming from this well. I mean, that's where they were actually, sitting at this well. But in the scriptures that this woman did not know, living water means so much more. And I remind you of some Old Testament references. In Jeremiah, we hear of living water as something which only the Lord can give to people. Something which they lost, his people lost, when they turned away from him. So the prophet Jeremiah writes, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then Jeremiah chapter 17, later, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Then the prophet Zechariah speaks of the day of the Lord, and he uses this language. He says, on that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a, a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at the evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
This is speaking of a future time when all things will be made new. So living water is something that only God can give. Which meets our deepest needs. And which nothing else can replace. And by comparison, anything that we get from this world or from our idols is just a broken cistern that can hold no water. On the day of the Lord, when the Lord, through his Messiah, establishes his kingdom across the face of the whole earth, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem to the whole earth. So living water is clearly an image of God's satisfying salvation, of his rich and everlasting blessing, of eternal life and joy flowing from him and from him alone. I think it's interesting that if you go buy a bottle of water, uh, and, and it's something that, that we do on the regular. We talked about this before. Uh, we're on a, a new plan now where we get these five-gallon jugs delivered to our house. And we have one of those dispensers, you know. And, 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 and you'll see on some of those, it will say, say pure life. Isn't that interesting? I can't help but think of this text every time I see that on a bottle of water. And certainly, physically speaking, uh, water can save one's life. It's a necessity that, that we, we, we've got to have. Uh, we probably all go around more dehydrated than we realize many times. But what is it that Jesus is really getting at here? What, what, what is he really saying? So I want you to notice in verses 11 and 12, this woman's natural skeptical sarcasm. She doesn't get any of this. She's not into metaphors and imagery. It's kind of like Nicodemus when Jesus started talking about new birth and all that. Nicodemus is naturally he's like, wait, 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 what are you saying? Are you saying a man can enter a second time into his mother's womb? And I, what in the world? She's a practical woman who's tired of coming to the well alone in the heat of the day. She's also skeptical. And as a woman who's been divorced five times and who's now with her sixth man, there's no doubt that she's been burned by men before. And she replies to Jesus with a skeptical sarcasm. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She's, she's naturally thinking solely about physical water that's coming out of this well. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she looks at this tired and thirsty Jewish man who has nothing with which to draw water, doesn't, believe, doesn't fully understand or believe a word that he just said. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he's greater than Jacob? The well was given by, by the father of the whole nation of Israel, by the man who was uh, named Israel by God himself. The well had served God's people for over 2,000 years by this time. Uh, this woman came to draw water from it. What could Jesus possibly have to offer that could be better than Jacob's well? This is the best place to get water. But I want you to notice in verses 13 through 15 a saving satisfaction. Jesus responds by adding another unbelievable statement to the one that he's already made. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of, the, of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the water coming out of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never be thirsty again. Now, now wouldn't it be amazing? If there was water that could be purchased, that could be had from somewhere, some particular uh, source, some spring somewhere, that if you drank just one bottle of that water, you would never thirst again. We could save a lot of water on our water bill, couldn't we? I, I've, I've never really put, a, a, you know, put it to pen and paper how much we spend on water, but I suspect it's quite a bit. 
What if, there, if you could just get a hold of this, this one particular type of water, all you got to do is drink one 16-ounce bottle of this water, and you will never be thirsty again. You've got to understand, anything physical that we seek to satisfy our needs provides only temporary satisfaction. We thirst. We drink water. Soon, we're thirsty again. We're tired, so we rest. Soon, we're tired again. We hunger, so we eat. Soon, we hunger again. And if you've got a teenage boy living in your home, that seems to happen about every 10 or 15 minutes, right? So what remains beneath all of our physical needs and their temporary satisfactions is a deep spiritual hunger and thirsting, a profound, powerful longing for nothing that nothing in this world can satisfy. Some of you have experienced it personally, maybe in a pursuit of something that would satisfy you, that would fill a void that seems to be so present in your life. You've, you've searched for it in all kinds of stuff. Much like Solomon, you read the book of Ecclesiastes. He tried all these things. He tried drink. He tried women. He tried stuff, more things. If I just acquire more things, I'll finally... And what did he say in the end? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all, abund- it's all vaporous. Is what he's saying. It doesn't provide eternal satisfaction. You're not going to find it in the things of this world, the stuff of this world. And yet, it seems like we're always in this crazy, never-ending pursuit of something else, something more, a different position, a different home, a better car. All the stuff that this world has, I'm thinking, if I can just get that, if I can just get that position, if I can, then I'll be satisfied. I'm often reminded of Tom Brady, who many would say is the greatest football player of all time. At the height of his career, at the height of his career, I agree with you, I don't think he's the greatest of all time either. <laughs> but at the height of his career, many, multiple Super Bowl rings by that point. At that time, married to a supermodel, certainly had anything and everything that money could possibly buy. And you know what he said? There has to be more than this. There has to be more than this. And if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, man, I sure would like to try your life for a few days. But what he found is ultimately you can have everything this world has to offer, all the success, all the fame, all the fortune, all those things, and it still doesn't satisfy. That's the point that Jesus is making here. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis explains this deep desire of the human soul. I want you to listen carefully to what he writes. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry. There's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, listen to this, is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. 
I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press onto that country and to help others do the same. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, my friends, you are simply a pilgrim who's passing through. This world is not your home. And so the things of this world will never satisfy your deepest longings. You can scratch and claw and do everything in your power, humanly speaking, to get the stuff, and it will not ultimately satisfy you. Jesus knew that this woman, even more so than most people, knew that nothing in this world could satisfy the deepest longings of her heart. She'd experienced more of life than most people and had been disappointed and left wanting more than most people. And so he is determined to bring her to real satisfaction, which only he can give. And for her part, the Samaritan woman is starting to respond. She's now interested in the idea of something that might satisfy her thirst. And although she's still thinking too literally, in the first positive and hopeful words she speaks to Jesus, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What she was saying, physically speaking, is this is exhausting. It's exhausting for me to come here. It's exhausting for me to hide in the shadows of shame. It's exhausting. If there was something you could offer me that would, that would just take me out of this reality that I find myself living every day, that would be amazing. And as we continue to look at Jesus' conversation with this woman, we'll see how she comes to find satisfaction for her thirsty soul. You see, we need to stay thirsty for Jesus. The eternal life that is found only in him. So this morning, if you do not know him, I would simply say, come. Come. Take a step of faith. There's not magical words that you have to say. It's not a particular prayer where you use a really religious language that maybe you're unfamiliar with or you find, you find awkward. It's simply acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you can't save yourself. You have a sin debt, but you can't pay it yourself. So that step of faith is simply saying, I need a Savior, a satisfying Savior. So if we could just for a moment bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. I don't know where you might be spiritually this morning. I never want to assume in a room full of people like this that everyone here is in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're familiar with who Jesus is. Maybe you know of him. Maybe you've even read the Gospel of John. And you've come to understand Jesus as 
a great teacher, someone who brought to, uh, came to this world to bring hope and some kindness, but you've yet to fully understand the peace and the satisfaction that can come only through faith in Jesus Christ. So if that's you today, then I would invite you to take that step of faith, whereby you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John records for us here in his gospel a simple conversation, an account, an encounter between God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a Samaritan woman. who knew what it was to be marginalized in the society in which she lived. Lord, I thank you for the ultimate satisfaction that can be found only in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you, that by your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word, they would be drawn to you today. Lord, for those of us who share a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that we would have a renewed passion to share your love with others, to let them know of the, of the satisfaction and the hope that we find through faith in Jesus Christ, that living water. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.